Did Joe Biden take a bribe and should he become a dictator? We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, my friend and yours, Jeff Blair, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brennan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Made In and the Free the Economy podcast from CEI. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, there's been this fight over getting securing the release of this FBI form relating what was told to the FBI by a confidential source who apparently is quite reliable and has dealt with the FBI for years about what the head of Burisma told him, a lot of astonishing stuff. The nugget of it, though, is that he gave what he characterized as a as a bribe to Hunter and Joe Biden, five million big ones each. What do you make of it? Well, I mean, this is sort of like what we've been wondering about, uh, what we've been waiting to hear. It's hard to it's hard to rate it. I mean, like I think the instinct is, I think most people are going to treat this according to their predisposition about the Bidens, right? You know, this hasn't been adjudicated in any other major public forum. We're just getting the, the this leak and, you know, quote unquote, unverified information. We've seen how bad, you know, the information circulating in the intel community can be in things like the Trump dossier. So that's why I would, I would caution people to be at least a little bit hesitant before jumping all in on this. Um, but yeah, so like on the tapes, which we started to interrupt the, the tapes, which we've heard so much about, it's the source telling us that the head of Burisma said he had him. And we, we have no idea whether the source is right about what the head of Burisma told him or whether the, the head of Burisma was, you know, blowing smoke or actually had these things. I just imagine he doesn't have them anymore, <laughs> but uh it's it's a it's 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 all very suggestive, but as you say, is far from nailed down. Yes, yeah, it's, it's far from nailed down. But like I said, it is. It does. It it's very hard to say because it fits in with some evidence that we have previously about you know the way Hunter talks about the big guy and and just the way Hunter acted. You know, the whole story of Barisma is intensely complex with like various oligarchs with totally contrary alliances to the Ukrainian side, to the Russian side. You know, this is a story that I don't actually don't think we understand very well or that the American press has covered very well. So yeah, I would just caution anyone against immediately jumping onto this as the, the smoking gun, but you can't dismiss it either. So now it's just, and now it's just out here in the public domain and we have to deal with it. Yeah. So, so Jeff, as MBD points out with the, the reference to, to the big guy, this is not something this confidential source would have known was already out there, right? So, so this is a suggestive piece of evidence. And then there's the, the whole pattern. The head of Burisma says, you know, it'll take investigators 10 years to figure out what we've done here because there are so many shell companies involved with these payments. And that's something that Republicans, House Republicans have uncovered in their investigation of the Biden family corruption is that uh, you had all these LLCs set up to take the big 
big payments from overseas, and then they were parceled out in uh, much smaller payments to various family members, some of whom had nothing to do with the alleged business that was was happening here, which is an inherently corrupt arrangement or arrangement that would set up alarm bells. And this is consistent with that pattern. Yeah. Boy, it does all seem to fit together, doesn't it, Rich? It does seem to be of a piece, but you know what? That's why I have to I kind of have to just really endorse what Michael said here, because this this case to me feels almost like a siren. I treat it like that siren singing me to shipwreck. I don't want to be seduced by the song because you're right. It all just seems to come together so perfectly. So my natural instinct, not a natural instinct, actually, it's an instinct you have to learn through hard experience growing up over the years, is when something just feels too good to be true, hold off. Wait for the confirmation. Because, yeah, I, I have to say that this is – the behavioral patterns do seem to be of a piece. I cannot – I don't detect any false notes, which is the key thing for me here. And I listen to this, and, and I don't detect a single missing bit. Nothing rings hollow or rings false when, when I listen to the Burisma guy describe this setup. This, as, as you pointed out, totally accords with what we already knew. So then I start getting more paranoid. It's like, well, maybe it's too perfect a story, right? Why, is, why isn't there anything even weird that just pops up that makes you go, huh? Because that's the way reality often is. There's weird things that come up and crop up. But more to the point, it's just that y- – y- you know, it, it passes the threshold of plausibility. But beyond that, to to just start talking about, like, everybody knows for a fact that Joe Biden's taking a $5 million bribe. Yeah, let's be careful here. There's no proof of that yet. Uh, there's there's stuff that remains yet to be investigated. So, Charlie, Daryl Issa, who's, who's on uh, th- this committee or some other committee involved in investigations, tweeted the other day, that over some period, I don't know, five or six years or whatever it is, $17 million from foreign sources went to the Bidens. So you kind of, uh, to look at it from 30,000 feet, there are two damning scenarios. One is that they got all this money without doing anything for it, which is quite plausible and was because people thought they would get something for it, or they actually did stuff for it, which which would be even worse. I'm getting a little bit tired of having to listen to Michael correctly say that we ought to be careful. Not because I don't think that we ought to be careful. Of course, we must. I don't know the answer here. But one reason that I don't know the answer, or really have any way to evaluate this, is that the press just is not interested in this at all. All I see is the allegation. There's no mediating information here. The press does not want to talk about this issue. This is obviously a story that is worthy of investigation. Yesterday or the day before, you had IRS whistleblowers in Congress didn't make it into the Washington Post. Obviously, they needed to reserve that space for Jennifer Rubin's column. (laughs) Why didn't it make it into the Washington Post? I'm not saying the whistleblowers are correct. But obviously, that is worthy of investigation and coverage. You go all the way back to the 2020 election. There was clearly an attempt to bury the Hunter Biden laptop story. A concerted attempt. And that one turned out to be true. So it's not the case that every time there is something explosive about Joe Biden or his family, that it is revealed to be right-wing fluff. We have an example of one that was downplayed, that was described as Russian disinformation. You had 50 former intelligence officers attaching themselves to that characterization and actually was real. Why 
will the press not get involved in this? You know, I am critical, as I am being now, of the New York Times and the Washington Post and so on. But they do have good investigative teams. There are good journalists there. There are people who can look at this. And if this is all smoke, if there's no fire, which is possible, I'm certainly not going to pretend that I know, and I'm certainly not going to jump ahead of myself, then they are extremely well-placed to discover that, to convey that, to do their job. What is the point in being the paper of record if you won't record things that are happening in politics, things that are potentially explosive? Really, it seems to me that they have taken this story and they have deliberately left it ambiguous in the hope that people who are irresponsible will get ahead of themselves. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to fall for that trap. But I am going to ask once again, why is this not bigger news? Why is this not being covered? Why don't they have teams looking at it? There was a piece in the Washington Post yesterday about Clarence Thomas and Leonard Leo that had three bylines on it. And if you read the whole thing, you discovered that there was no there there. It was a a totally irrelevant story. But one person couldn't just write up, even neutrally, passively, skeptically if you want, what had happened in Congress? Come on. Charlie, you make a good point. We had a story last week about former clerks to Justice Thomas Venmoing him like $20 for a meal that they shared together as if this was evidence of some kind of corrupt financial relationship. Meanwhile, like we know for a fact that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's brother trade on Biden's name, know about that, that Joe Biden knows that they do this has provided even, you know, air force two or air force one in, in traveling during these, business meetings I, like how is this not like more zealously pursued i mean it's it's utterly insane i i know you guys both well enough to assume that you're asking rhetorical questions here and that you both i suspect have answers that you you think are as to why the media doesn't do this but if not i'll hang a lampshade on it And I'll just say it's rather obvious that this is a corporate entity, frankly, that makes its decisions not like, you know, nobody hands down to writ, but it's socially controlled and they all have leftist instincts and their natural interests. I don't think there's, I don't, sometimes I think there's a genuine like, yeah, we're not going to talk about this. It does not benefit Joe Biden. I think more often than not, it's just a corporate sensibility like, oh, that's not a story. That's just right wing people crazily grambling. I think, I don't know. I, I am divided on whether it's an actual conspiracy or it's genuine bubble, bubble mentality. No, I I think it is that the press believes that Donald Trump is such a threat to the republic that... That's a conspiracy, though. Well, that word is, is really pointed, but I think that reflexively the American press has come to believe that if this were true, it would clearly be devastating to President Biden... And he would have to resign. And that whatever the likelihood that it is true is, it is too much of a risk to find out because Donald Trump represents such a threat to the republic that anything that might help him win re-election is not worth it. So MBD, let's dwell on these whistleblowers a, a, a little bit. Charlie's right to, to point out that the coverage was not what you would expect uh, and and wouldn't be what it would have been if if these guys were uh, blowing the whistle on a Republican cover-up operation. But 
to Jeff's point, you know, uh, if you're an old sea dog has been around the block a couple times, you know, kind of a, a ideologically motivated whistleblower who might be a little bit too fervent. These guys are not that. I mean, they're total professionals. They knew much more about the subject matter and the law than the Democrats who are trying to poke holes in their story. And it's a damning story. Right. I mean, one of them is like a gay Democrat and he, like in his testimony was basically apologizing to both Democrats and the gay community for even noticing that, you know, this was totally unorthodox and that it's not normal for the IRS to just wave away uh, an $11 million tax fraud. Uh, and yeah, they were credible. And, and like you said, they, they, um, I think the other one mentioned he was a Republican, but again, no ax grinding tons of references just to the law. Like it was far more impressive than say like, you know, Vinman who came out during the Trump years and was like, former Ukrainian citizen and obviously passionate about Ukraine and Russia and passionately hated Trump and was hailed as like a hero for government integrity when they uh, were trying to impeach Trump for the perfect phone call. But this is, yeah, again, this is, this is very serious. It's, it, I think the real result of it though, is that like, it increases American cynicism about our institutions, right? Like if the IRS is now at the point where it's, it's starting to regularly leak tax information of conservatives or of Donald Trump to ProPublica somehow, no one ever gets punished for this. This used to be like the big bright line that was never to be crossed for the IRS was to leak people's personal information. Now it does it regularly. And then when Hunter Biden's case comes up, well, the statute of limitations just sort of passes without notice. And then, you know, when it's finally exposed to the public, like a little misdemeanor charge is arranged and it all goes away. Uh, it's astonishingly corrupt. <laughs> like, um, I don't know why you'd think you'd get a fair hearing. So next question to you first, Charlie, percentage odds. That Joe Biden will be forced to resign or not run again as a result of these various financial transactions and revelations to come. Well, it's an impossible question to answer, but I suppose if I stand back and I imagine the likelihood of this sort of thing happening in American politics, I would have to conclude that it's low. So, I don't know, 20%. 20%. I think that's high. Well, because there's, it's high in the sense that there's so much information out there, but it also could be nonsense. Mm-hmm. I would just like someone to acknowledge and parse it so that I could answer that question intelligently. Yes. Yeah, so someday we should do a, whole, a mashup of people saying, that question's impossible to answer. Rich, what, what are you asking? What Really? You're making me answer that? So we'll go to UMBD next. Percentage odds? We'll have to resign or not run again. Um, I'll just group... Uh, all Hunter Biden related resignations is like a a five percent or lower possibility. Yeah, whether it's whether it's acknowledging this or like saying, you know, he doesn't want to spend the last years of his life <laughs> having his son's life litigated publicly. I don't know. 
They're separate things, though, aren't they? In that resign means that the evidence is so clear and we have a Watergate-style scandal. Not run again could be that this contributes to a general impression that he would be a bad candidate, knocks two or three points off of his poll numbers and leads the Democrats to conclude they should go with someone else who isn't liable to be under investigation. All right. So, okay. So a lot of, so a lot of your 20, a lot of your 20%, Charlie, is that latter right. scenario? Okay. That makes, right. okay. That makes sense. And if that's how you're thinking of it, I basically agree with you, Charlie. All right. So we got, so Charlie, like 5% resign. Yeah. And maybe even lower. Okay. All right. So we got two, we got a five and a, uh, a combined, a five and then an, a 15 adding up to 20 from these two scenarios, Jeff. Rich, that question is impossible to answer. <laughs> Can you make me answer that question? I wouldn't. I wouldn't answer them if they were. I wouldn't ask them if they're possible to answer. Okay. Well, the reason it's impossible to answer is because there are. I mean, just to point, you know, point out what, what Michael and uh, Charlie have already said is there are two separate questions to, to ask here. It's like first is is he actually guilty of it? Did he do the crime? And the second of it is whether he did the crime or not. Would he be made to resign for it? We don't know the answer to the first one yet. We have a lot of intuitions, but boy, that ain't nothing to me because i'm a lawyer I, I have my political opinions but no you just can't leap to the conclusion that he's guilty right now all right if he were let us posit then therefore that he is guilty of it and it could somehow be demonstrated would he be made to resign i'm still around one percent it's not happening one percent okay and not not running again scenario kind of contributing to other stuff? If he, if, other he, stuff? if he doesn't run again, it's going to be because of medical issues. It's because nobody will tell – nobody puts baby in the corner and nobody's really going to tell Joe Biden that he can't be president in the second term, especially running against Donald Trump, unless like you basically say, I'm like, you really can't do this job physically anymore. And you know what? So we you're flat, we you're, already you're think just, you can't, a, but like you don't have to get you're, worse. You're, you're a flat 1%. <sighs> Whatever. Pick a number, but it's like very low. <laughs> two. Maybe. Okay, All I've right. changed to two. No, my, it's my favorite answers are, are, are when you guys ex- ex- explain at great length why you can't answer and then, then actually give an answer. Yes, thanks. So you're, you're, uh, we'll put you down to 1% to 2%. I'm with Charlie and MBD. I think it's it's 5 and then five, 5 resign and 20 overall. It, it somehow contributes to him leaving office or not running again. With that, take that to the bank, people. Take that one to the bank. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Made in Cookware. We have made-in frying pans here in our kitchen, and they are awesome. Made-in was created by a 100-year-old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply. It works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Your best meals are ahead of you with artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware. Made-in's award-winning non-stick cookware has a double-layer, professional-grade, non-stick coating. Its stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. We've found all this indeed to be very true here in the Lowry household. Our maiden pans are great to handle. They cook evenly, and very, very importantly, they are easy to clean. So maiden cookware gets our highest recommendation, and especially my wife's recommendation. And right now, editors, listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Made In. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash editors. So, Jeff, you were a little worked up by this piece, by this uh, uh, le- left-wing 
legal analyst, scholar, et cetera, Mark Tushnet saying that Tushnet, Tushnet saying that Tushnet saying that Joe Biden owes it to the country, to himself, to all that is good and true to ignore Supreme Court rulings that don't go the way he likes. What do you make of it? Well, I'm just a tad worked up about it. I, I, I think I churned out. I, I literally churned out for six hours straight from midnight to 6 a.m. 2,500 words about how angry this thing got me. So let's locate who Mark Tushnet is. Some of the listeners might not have any idea. He's a legal scholar, a guy out of Harvard Law. And you might be thinking, okay, well, there are a lot of legal scholars in this world, and there are a lot of left-wingers. This guy is like the, one of the deans, I'd say, of the critical legal studies field. Critical legal studies is the field that spawned, that gave the world critical racial theory, which I'm sure you've heard at least a little bit about on the editor's podcast over the last few years, right? So this guy is a big deal, and he's also kind of been seen as a vanguard and an omen. Like when he speaks and he writes, he sounds like a crazy radical, and then five, six years later, yeah, well, that's the trend. Those are the two of the times and that's that's what people are talking about tushnet has always had this belief this is the critical legal studies belief that law is just a phony imposture it's all just you know a tool of the rich white people to encode their white privilege and to oppress others and therefore it deserves no law it's a theory of law that is explicitly about power instead and that if democrats take power whatever they should do is simply do what they can. And, uh, you know, you know, let's see if they can get away with it. It's an anti-legal point of view. Tushnet famously galvanized the legal conservative community in 2016 when he started it too early. In May 2016, he wrote this piece called Abandoning Defensive Crouch Liberal Constitutionalism, which is to say, he's like, once we take back, now, now that Scalia's dead, and we're going to be able to replace him, we'll replace Ginsburg, we'll probably replace Kennedy, we're going to get that 6-3 majority, then it's just time to rewrite the whole damn Constitution. We're going to shoot the survivors of the culture war, and we're going to glory in our victories. It was so bloodthirsty and so salivating that People at National Review actually sent this to me and said, I think this could actually – Trump might win the election on the backs of stuff like this. I don't know if he did, but it made the Federalist Society make sure that Trump's appointments were gold standard A-plus stuff. And he's back again with a piece that's even crazier than that, saying that, yeah, well, now that we lost that war because, oops, Trump won, I guess we should just abandon this all and say, yeah, you know what? Joe Biden can simply override the Constitution uh, if he disagrees with the Supreme Court. And there isn't even a real appeal to legal logic. Charlie and I both wrote about this. We actually tag-teamed the piece, as it turns out, in different places. So he, I'm sure he has just as much to say. So Charlie, there, there is a, a point of view that you know, other uh, high constitutional officers should have their own theory of the Constitution. This was, you know, uh, characterized Lincoln's Lincoln's view. Now it wasn't just arbitrarily just defying things he didn't like as things that he had an abiding view that were were wrong. Uh, like Dred Scott, he didn't really honor. Is there anything to be said for Tushnet's theory on that level? All right, that's a huge question. Let me try and take that from the bottom. I, I only ask impossible and huge questions. <laughs> what you're asking is whether departmentalism is justified. So the answer to that is no, now. The U.S. Constitution and its interpretation and enforcement has developed in a certain manner. And whether one likes it or not the fact that Marbury v. Madison was decided and that 
in the later part of the 19th century and then in the 20th century and in our century, the Supreme Court has come to be regarded as the final arbiter of constitutional law and federal statutory interpretation matters. We do not have a system in which the other branches can ignore or amend Supreme Court decisions. This was a matter of debate at the time of the founding, and some of the most prominent founders and early presidents argued that we should not have judicial supremacy in this realm. Thomas Jefferson was among them. But we do. And the side to which Tushnet belongs has been largely responsible for that. This has had profound consequences on our politics, one of which has been that conservatives who have disliked many key Supreme Court decisions have nevertheless agreed to play within the rules. The Republican Party and the conservative movement that informs it did not say after Roe v. Wade, okay, that's it. It worked within the system for 50 years to reverse it. For Tushnet to make the case now that we should have selective acquiescence to Supreme Court decisions is not a principled objection. It is a contingent objection. And just look at his behavior over the last few years for evidence of that. I saw some people saying, ah, he's always been skeptical. Well, he has and he hasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. In 2016, when he believed that Hillary Clinton was going to be president, he didn't write, now is the time to reduce the influence of the judiciary over American life. He said, look at all of these cases that we can change. Look at all these doctrines that we can build. Look at all these rules that we can impose. He even wrote in that post that it was time for the winners of our culture wars to bayonet everyone else using the court. This is a guy who has said that if he were put onto the Supreme Court, he would use his power to advance the cause of socialism. That's a direct quote. And all of a sudden, He's talking about departmentalism and so-called popular sovereignty. That will not do. I would be appalled by this if he had called for the abolition of the Supreme Court, but at least that would be consistent, principled, neutral. You abolish the Supreme Court, you abolish it for the Democrats and the Republicans, the left and the right, the pro-choices and the pro-lifers. You abolish the Supreme Court, you're giving something up if you're on the left. The Supreme Court has for a long time been used to impose political norms that the left likes as much as it has, or perhaps more than it has, political norms that the right likes. But that's not what he said, is it? He didn't say get rid of the judiciary. What he said was that this particular president should ignore particular Supreme Court decisions that he doesn't like, but that when a Republican is president again, or there's a Republican Congress again, we'll keep the Supreme Court around and presumably at that point reverse the dynamic along lines that are not in any way objective or comprehensible, but boil down to what Mark Tushnet happens to like. So if the question is, 
Is there an honorable case for departmentalism in the abstract? And has that case been made in American history? My answer is yes. If the question is, are there people who don't believe that we should have a judiciary within our system? The answer is yes. If the question is, has Mark Tushnet advanced any of those principled arguments? And is his invocation of so-called popular constitutionalism anything other than a cover for his desire to get what he wants because he's disappointed that the court hasn't been reconstructed along his own lines? The answer is emphatically no. And I think this is a perfect example of how intellectually and morally bankrupt left-leaning judicial philosophy has become. When conservatives started to lose, when they believed that the Constitution was being bent into a shape that they disliked, they went away and they resolved to rebuild their movement around the originalist approach that the Constitution, in my estimation, demands. What is the left doing? They are issuing faulty half-baked dissents that are designed to win plaudits in the press and calling for the abolition of the Supreme Court only in those realms that they dislike. I mean, more to the point, they, they've just decided that we didn't, we thought we had rigged the rules of this casino and now we're losing money in our own casino. So we're going to just change the rules. We're going to change the game. What you, Charlie, the thing, the reason this guy matters, the reason Mark Tushnet isn't just an, a, a one random academic scholar, it needs to be emphasized, is because the activists left are all Tushnetians now. Okay, just like we're all Keynesians now. Their practice, this is the same approach that you're going to see from the Ian Milheisers of the world. All the people who talk about abolishing the Senate or expanding the Supreme Court, which was specifically referenced in this manifesto. Everything here is geared towards an assumption that the judiciary is functionally lost on the Supreme Court level for the foreseeable future. So we need to simply act as if the third the third branch of government, while it cannot be said to not exist at this point, we are going to destabilize it so that we can do something to it in the future. It is such a deeply cynical, power-based play. It is all about power. It is so insultingly about power that they don't even bother to try to hide it anymore. By the way, there's a good little book came out a while ago about how Lincoln thought about these questions and related ones called Lincoln's Constitution by a guy named Daniel Farber. MBD. So I'm just going to take this Friday morning to brag that I called all of this years ago. <laughs> uh, I wrote a column 2018 in January, basically saying that when Anthony Kennedy dies, all hell is going to start breaking loose and whoever oh, yeah. ends up losing the, the, the tug. A lot of over. people did not like that column. Including me. <laughs> I said, whoever, basically I said, whoever loses the tug of war over the court after Anthony Kennedy dies that party's probably going to start contemplating nullification and packing the court and et cetera, et cetera. And so it's come to pass. And in fact, it, I it, I should have said and probably could have foreseen that it, it would more likely have been the left because, of course, they are less attached to the, the written constitution itself and they are more attached to a narrative that our institutions are corrupted by racism. But like... I mean, I saw this coming. I mean, the, the, the unprincipled attitude toward 
our institutions is constitutive of the left, right? I mean, they they fundamentally they fundamentally project their unprincipled attitude towards these institutions onto their opponents and onto American history itself, right? Like that is Tushnet's case in this that well, these institutions are preventing democracy itself from dismantling hierarchies of race and gender and etc you know that it, it that law is as Je- jeff said that law itself is a kind of ruse uh, just a, a mask that power wears and that's that's their view so that i'm not surprised that like mark tushman is arguing for let's just use whatever powers we have or claim new powers and use them unprincipally. I mean, one of the worst parts of that piece, though, is that he says, well, we have to do this because the Republicans will, even though they didn't. It, it reminded me of the left's attitude on the filibuster when they thought there was a chance that they could get rid of it last year and the year before. They said, well, the Republicans are going to get rid of the filibuster, so we have to do it. Even though, when they could have done it last time, they chose not to do it. And in fact... They spearheaded a open letter that was signed by, I think, 34 of the, at the time, 46, 47 Democratic senators. But Touchnet says, no, 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 no. We have to do this or the right will. Well, the right didn't do it. We've, we've just been through 50 years in which the right rebuilt its legal movement without doing that. And, uh, uh, and, and we already went through, you know, even if he says Trump is different, we went through a Trump administration that obeyed all those national injunctions. Many of them, re- many of them, facially ridiculous. Yeah, like the worst thing that happened was Jeff Sessions referred to Hawaii as a as a remote island, or was it Hawaii or someplace else where one of these judges was you referred to it as a remote yeah. place in the Pacific, and that was supposedly a threat a threat to our constitutional order. So, Charlie, exit question to you, and it's a trick question. Don't fall for it. Percentage odds that Joe Biden will become a dictator. I can't believe this, Rich. We've got an impossible question, a complicated question, and now a trick question. I'm running the gauntlet. Percentage odds that Joe Biden will become a dictator is 0% because the American system is strong. The American people won't put up for it, with it. Uh, the uh, No, it's 100% because he's already a dictator. I thought that's what you were going to say, Charlie. Uh, You've gone completely in the other direction on zero. it. He's not. He's not. But it matters that Mark Tushnet wants him to become a dictator. Yes. So so let me refine it a little bit for MBD. Percentage odds that Joe Biden will defy any Supreme Court decision. If he didn't do it on – find some way to do it on Dobbs, then he's not going to do it. But but they will continue funding little ex- exploratory committees and studies or like they did at the very beginning of the administration about court packing or about – you know, ways of limiting the court's jurisdiction. You know, this is going to become the obsession of the left. So Jeff, percentage odds that he'll defy some decision? Zero. Because, and the reason for that is <clears throat> it's not Joe Biden you need to worry about. It's Joe Biden's successor in the Democratic Party you need to worry about. And, and it might not even be his immediate successor. I think this is actually a very long-term play. This is the sort of thing that's meant to steep over a decade. So presumably after the next Republican president, back to the next Democratic president, 
<clears throat> then you ask yourself what the composition of the court looks like at that time. And if they're still on the losing end of it, that's when the real groundswell begins because the groundwork will have been laid over these 10 years. And I just think you're going to see a slow and steady drumbeat academically, media-wise. Think pieces will appear in the Atlantic or the New York Times once a year every now and then. They're going to try to normalize and mainstream this idea of a sort of imperialistic and broken judiciary to try to get it into the American slipstream, the conversation for the next move. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So I'm with everyone else. It's 0%, but this this kind of advocacy matters because we've, we've seen it so often across all sorts of different realms. It's a crazy idea. And then 10 years later, it uh, becomes a, a mainstream idea. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor, this episode, the Free the Economy podcast from the Competitive Enterprise Institute, health, wealth, and happiness, three goals that are essential to our lives, but attaining them is often impeded by heavy-handed government controls. That's why we must free the economy. Free the Economy is a weekly podcast produced by the Competitive Enterprise Institute that documents the opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment in a world with less government control. How can smart urbanism improve our lives? Where is economic freedom under attack? How can we unleash the potential of small business owners and innovators? Each week, host Richard Morrison offers news you can use and fascinating conversations with experts in their fields to answer these questions and more. I think we can all agree freedom is contagious. So check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash free the economy. Please check it out. So MBD, we have uh, a consequential movie that's just come out from Christopher Nolan Oppenheimer about the atomic scientist uh, central to the development of the atomic bomb. I have not seen this. I don't think any of us have seen it yet. A lot of our colleagues are. They ran out last night and uh, got to bed late after a, a, th a three-hour epic movie, which my understanding from the editorial call got got uh, mostly favorable reviews, but I thought it'd be an occasion for us to talk a little bit about the big big historical questions around the A-bomb. Was it right to drop it on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? What role has it had in, in the, the modern world and modern geopolitics? So I've been reading up because I'm intending to, to write something about this, about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And as, as far as I can see, there's zero case against what what we did, and you know, once once we started firebombing Japanese cities, we'd already passed the the event horizon. It was it was more a gradation rather than a, a qualitative qualitative difference. Dropping the atom bomb. I mean, Curtis LeMay had just burned out. Uh, basically, you know, by the end, it was almost every hamlet in Japan. It hadn't really uh, changed the disposition. Of the Japanese government, and then you look at the various possibilities. There's all sorts of controversy about the invasion scenarios and how many uh, casualties would have been involved. But it, it plausibly could have been quite a lot. Certainly, the U.S. military was taking the possibility that it would be quite a lot very seriously, and was looking at you know new new policies for how you replace our troops and train and and uh, get get more troops in the action because they they knew that the casualties could be quite high. We we're going to bomb the the Japanese rail system, which would have been a way of starving them out. You know that together with the blockade would have killed a lot of people as well. And then with every day that passed, you had the Japanese killing more people in China. You had the Soviets coming in, and they were not, uh, as Donald Trump might say, they were not nice people. Uh, they they were uh, 
you know, it's just gruesome what what they they were doing in their short short time in the Pacific War. So the, the thing about dropping the atom bombs is horrible. I, I think people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki experienced one of the most unfathomable things in all of human history. To you know, it's eight in the morning, and all of a sudden, literally, the world ends in your your city, and and all sorts of unspeakable things happen. But it ended the war. It ended the war, and every day counted in terms of human lives and American lives and ending the war. But what's what's your take? I've gone back and forth on this question a couple times in my life, and I probably I think I probably will until until I die. I mean, I think you know the decision to drop the bombs was also driven by a policy of unconditional surrender, which I tend to think is not a helpful policy in ending wars. It drives the Japanese, you know, however, were already, you could argue on the other side, that Japanese society itself was so radicalized. Um, I mean, it was, it was taught in schools, victory or a hundred million dead, right? Like that we're going to fight down to the last child in this war, that the, the line between, military and civilian was somehow blurred by the, the Japanese themselves. But, you know, this is, uh, you know, the firebombing of Japan and then the, the, the two nuclear blows, you know, this was, this was indis- you know, indiscriminate killing of civilians. This is mass murder. It's a, it's kind of logic of war in a democratic age where you're at war, not with just the state, but with the people and the society society as a whole. It's the, it's the worst thing I think we've ever done. I do think you're right, though, that there's a case that it was necessary to save American lives and politically necessary for Truman to do so once the technology so, was so, available. So, so you think that just the, the total warfare was the worst thing we've ever done or, or dropping the bombs or. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm haunted by the, I'm haunted by the prospect of total war the same way that, you know, the author of Ideas Have Consequences was that this is fundamentally an anti-civilizational act you know and you know it it was i mean it makes i mean when you're when you are there's always been in the ethics of war this fear of or this problem of distance and weapons right that like fundamentally the you know pope i mentioned pope innocent the second's uh ban on crossbows in a recent podcast and um you know that was because there was a kind of indiscriminate nature to it an unskilled marksman could fire into a field of troops and kill someone and that was seen as pretty horrible and just as it is there's an emotional distance that enables us to kill and destroy things that are are beautiful and deserving of protection i mean the 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 churches we bombed in italy you know like the monasteries itself like it's a disgrace that we did that but i'm that doesn't mean i'm that doesn't mean that doesn't mean anything about the justice of the war itself. Um, so anyway, I think it's I think it's really complicated. I, I respect people who say that it doesn't fit the the traditional Christian criteria of just war or justice in war. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, like I don't think the American people would have tolerated the idea that this technology existed and we didn't use it to end this war, particularly with with the way the Japanese would have defended their homeland. Yeah. So, so Jeff, the, the, the case for the, the, um, made at the time and afterwards for the 
firebombing was that uh, the um, you know the tight packed cities and people were had lathes and things in their home that they're kind of contributing in the uh, cottage industry to the the Japanese war machine. I'm not really sure that was uh, the the really the major motivation. And also Truman was saying, you know, we're going to have these discriminate attacks uh, using using the atom bomb when there were just really like four cities, right? And it wasn't like we're going to bomb this particular, you know, factory or port in this city. No, we're going we're going to bomb this city, but at the end of the day, as I was saying um, in my wind up to, to MBD, any more discriminate approach. And one reason we went to the firebombing is that Curtis LeMay, who had a black belt in this stuff, couldn't make the, the discriminate bombing work or have any uh, effect. So, so that's, that's why I went with the blunderbuss approach. But any more discriminate approach would have resulted in a longer war and would have just as a matter of sheer numbers, resulted in more deaths. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's a, there's a pragmatic, a fundamental analysis here that I do that I wouldn't say that it's an uncomplicated call by any means, but it settles it pretty decisively on the side of, yes, it was, it was not a wonderful thing that we dropped the bomb, but it was the correct call to have made. I think, you know, for me, historically, um, there's a book, I don't know if you guys have read, has anybody here read Downfall by Richard Frank? Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the, I think... Uh, yeah, I was literally reading it last night. I've had it on my shelves forever, and it it seems really authoritative. So I came, I came across it in college. It was my, my dad handed it to me. He's like, Jeff, you got to read this. And so it settles in my mind. This is a, a work of both popular history but also like scholarly history and that I think it really definitively settles the case that the Japanese government was not going to surrender. They were not going to surrender until we dropped the bombs. And not only did they not surrender after Hiroshima, there had been an assumption on their side, well, maybe that was just the one. And they, they just shot their wad. They don't have anything else left in the yeah, can. We, we, we only have one and, and or there'll be such an international reaction. We're not, not going to drop and it so again. We can hold out. We can hold out. And, and, and so, boom, then they had to drop the second one. And by the way, even after Hirohito went to surrender, I, I believe they tried to stage an abortive coup mm-hmm. even to prevent mm-hmm. it from happening. It is v- Well, they, they, they usually have kind of left him out of you know formal policy right. decisions. He, he was hovering above all that. But the cabinet was divided. You know, even after we dropped the bomb, right, and that's why he was asked to decide it. And so, I, I think you can simply cannot say the historical record rather d- clearly demonstrates that had this not happened, there would have been an invasion of the mainland of Japan. And here's and here's where you know it gets personal for a lot of people because my grandfather would have been on that invasion. Okay, my grandfather was in the Pacific Theater, got a Purple Heart. He would have been probably one of those guys boarding that boat, and so. You know, I'm sure that's a story that a lot of other people could also tell because a lot of people served in the Pacific. I don't want to think about what would have happened in a world where my grandpa, John, had to go uh, storm the beaches of Japan. I'm pretty glad he didn't. And I was actually, this is a story that's not original to me. This comes from, I think it actually might have been Phil, uh, you know, Phil Klein, who was talking about he was visiting the Udvar-Hazy Museum, the Air and Space Museum in D.C., uh, in in Northern Virginia, and the Enola Gays there. And the docent said, like the, the other day, a Japanese, an old Japanese man in a wheelchair came up to me and he said, this plane saved my life. And he says, because I was there and I was preparing for the invasion of the mainland. He was one of those guys holding a bamboo spear, you know, and basically saying, well, this is all you have to defend yourself against the United States Army. Good luck. The, the human cost for the Japanese civilian population in any in any US army invasion of Japan would have been inconceivable on top of everything else everybody was spared by the dropping does, of the bomb but doesn't that but doesn't that 
then question the policy of unconditional surrender. Right? Well, if okay, you, the, great if, question. If you, if you, right, because like, I mean, if if the costs are going to be that insane for both sides, why not say, okay, we're not going to occupy you, we're not going to disarm you entirely. We're just going to, maybe the condition is just no Japanese territory outside the home island. Hey, Michael, you know yeah. what? The problem is the Japanese were a victim of the success of their own propaganda. You know what? They were too good with the whole kamikaze stuff, selling the Americans on the fact that they were insane maniacs who would literally accept nothing but complete victory or complete defeat. Because, yeah, these guys would commit suicide. They would just you know, fly their airplanes into your aircraft carrier, take you out just to take them out. And so America got propagandized successfully by the Japanese into believing they really could not be reasoned with and guess what that's what happens i mean the other thing is we don't even know i mean it's kind of unknowable but at the time but we didn't know at the time that the, eventually the, the pressure from the soviets in the dawning cold war would basically turn our occupation of japan into like we're going to rebuild your economy make you a major trading partner make you a major manufacturing center and make you much richer than you've ever been um you know, I, I imagine Japan. Japan's idea of U.S. occupation looked more like Japan's occupation of Manchuria. Exactly. But instead, it, it's, instead, instead, instead of giving out. them baseball, right? Exactly. Yeah, like the first thing we did is like we 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 uh, we win the war, and then, then we realize, oh, actually, we we didn't really realize it during the war. That this country is about to starve to death. Let, let's get them a massive amounts of rice and grain. Well, because, <laughs> you know, I mean, because well, Stalin wanted to go go after Hokkaido. Like, I mean, and and Truman was the one who drew the lines. I, I mean, I would, you know. It is a kind of like weird thing. I mean, we have Japanese and German cars all over American roads today because of what the decision decisions were in those four mm-hmm. years post-war, which was basically like, well, we're making we're so under pressure. We've got to immediately rebuild Japan and Germany and make them our allies and give them like special access to our market and even shed some of our manufacturing capacity to them. And our market dominance to them in order uh, to I know, build I know up. What, I know what Charlie's thinking. This this gets to the the the, the nub of MBD's uh, objection to our policy. It ultimately uh, breached breached our, our protectionist uh, trade markets. Hurts American <laughs> manufacturing. <laughs> yeah. No, this is the enormity. No, but it's a true thing. It's a true thing that we made a ge- geopolitical decision that that resulted in in having a much more diverse, like a, a much less hegemonic That's market for cars worldwide. I think it was the correct decision for two fairly simple reasons. The first is that they started it. The Japanese attacked the United States and the Nazis attacked Europe. Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan were aggressive and evil. I'm originally British, so we focus on Germany more than the Pacific Theater. My grandfather on my mother's side lived on an apple farm. My grandfather on my father's side was a carpenter. They were both taken out of their lives to go fight in North Africa and Italy and France. Not because they wanted to, but because other people made that decision. In the United States, those who were sent to fight in the Pacific and also in Europe, they didn't want to do that. This wasn't an American aim. 
They were forced to do that. Now, the war in the Pacific really begins in 1937. We say 1939, but the Japanese invade China in 1937. That war in and of itself costs 9 to 20 million casualties. The Japanese had been at this for a long time. The second, and for me, the dispositive reason that it was right, was that Harry Truman was the president of the United States and not of the world. What we did in Japan was obviously horrible. But Harry Truman's job was to choose between Americans and the Japanese who had attacked Americans and were engaged in a war of conquest. Harry Truman was accountable to the American people, not to the Japanese. There were hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of American citizens, some of whom were recent immigrants, who would have been sent into the Pacific to die, or be horribly maimed, see things that would have scarred them for life. Not because the Americans wanted to be there, but because the Japanese had forced them to be there and showed no signs of letting up. Unconditional surrender was absolutely the right call. What did he do in that situation? What were his choices? His choices were to prioritize his own people, or to prioritize the lives of others. I don't envy him that decision. I don't. But he made the right call. And I think we sometimes forget this. It was not incumbent on him. It was not incumbent on him, beyond a certain baseline, to worry too much about proportionality. Now, of course, if he had been told by his chiefs of staff, Mr. President, we drop the bomb or five Americans will die. Okay. But we can argue all day. Would it have been 100,000? Would it have been 800,000? Would it have been 3 million? I'm sorry. He had a tool with which he could end a war, which at that point had cost more than two, 300,000 American lives that was leading around the world to, what, 50 million deaths? That was the worst thing that had ever happened and still has ever happened to the world. And he had the chance to end it and in the process save the lives of the people who elected him and to whom he was, well, indirectly, he, of course, became president because Truman died and to whom he was FDR. accountable. Yeah, FDR died. I, I do not think this was a, a, a tough call. MBD, exit question to you. Nuclear weapons have been a great guarantor, a guarantor of international peace or are a threat to civil, human civilization or both? They're both. They're, they're both. It's, we are habituated to the idea of, of living with them and they have prevented, they surely prevented a war between the United States and the Soviet Union during the period that we now call the Cold War. But we, I don't think we can depend on that, the norms against using them holding up. I, you know, I just, you know, it's a matter of time, I think, before they're used again or, or smaller tactical nukes are used on battlefields. You know, human history has not changed utterly and forever. 
I think we're going to see a low-yield nuclear weapon used in our lifetimes, and I mean it recent, soon in our lifetimes, and I think the thing that will horrify us all the most about it is how little it will end up mattering in the long run. I think what will shock us the most is that like, when it turns out that, oh, why? Because it will incentivize people to use them again. And that's when it will get worse. The first time will happen and people will say the world didn't end. And the second time might end the world. And that's scary. Charlie? Well, I think the answer is both. They've kept the peace because they have the potential to destroy us. I always had some sympathy for Ronald Reagan's desire to rid the world of nuclear weapons because they are indeed horrendous. But he understood too that Sometimes wanting to rid the world of them means you, you need more. There's a paradox here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, obviously it's it's both. They did keep the peace during the Cold War, but you know it, it wasn't necessarily a lock. The Cuban Missile Crisis, we came really close, and potentially something could have bounced the the wrong way and and caused a a, a world history changing catastrophe. Well, you also, I mean, one thing to add is, I mean. You had two rational rationalist opponents in the United States and the Soviets. You may not have rationalism in the future, right? I mean, like the very fact of their ability to destroy the world uh, and world civilization may be seen as the reason to use them, right? Like, hey, look, we can end racism just by right. ending humanity. <laughs> like, I mean, like, you know, but or end, you know, or just the the nihilistic philosophy that is welling up inside of humanity currently could you know develop into something like where we really decide oh humans are the enemy of the planet etc it needs to be begun anew it could be a plot plot of a movie there I yeah think. so with that let me do a quick plug for nr plus if you've enjoyed the the discussion you've just heard this is the kind of thing we do all the time on our podcast on videos in the print magazine online. So it's really valuable, I, I think. I hope you agree. And if you do, and you're not already a member of NR Plus, please consider signing up. It's really important to us. We need people to pay for our content. We don't need people to pay a ton for our content. We just need a critical mass of people to pay a little bit for our content. You sign up for NR Plus, the meter paywall, which is a major intrusion. Obviously, it's meant to be. If you're not a member, goes away. If you sign up and log in, the ads, which we which we need to supplement our income be, um, uh, because our, our, uh, if our num sign-up numbers were higher, we wouldn't need them, but they go away for you if you sign up. So if you sign up and log in, they are gone. And also, if you want to, you don't have to, obviously, but if you want to, you can uh, become a uh, more engaged member of our community by commenting on articles on and blog posts, by being invited to uh, special events and Zoom calls. We had one down in Memphis just a week or so ago when a number of us were down at um, Freedom Fest, just met at Irish Pub and just hung out and talked for a couple hours over beers. So it's a great deal all around. Please, if you're not already a member, consider signing up today, tomorrow, or the day after. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you've been listening to the new album from Queens of the Stone Age. Yes, um, In Times New Roman. I think it's a return to form for this this band led by Josh Homme. It's 
probably sounds unusual to, to listeners to the editors. It's a very hard rock album. If you like that kind of music um, and you haven't tuned into Queens of the Stone Age, what are you? I don't even know what you're doing. They're the tightest, most creative, sinister sounding, a hard rock band of their generation and have been yeah, for 20 years. So check it out. Jeff, you've been listening to the best white blues guitarist out there. Uh, creating the, the question, what uh, who who is the best white blues guitarist out there? Oh, allow me to sing the praises of Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit. No, <laughs> I, I will not do that. Okay, first of all, you might be thinking Eric Clapton. No, you might be thinking Stevie Ray Vaughan. No, but in terms of white blues guitarists, the true true fans might understand this one. It's a man named Peter Green. He was the original founding member of Fleetwood Mac, a band everybody knows for something that sounds a lot different than the blues. And Charlie, of course, knows it very well because he was the guest on our, our uh, Political Beats two-parter uh, about, about all the eras of the band. This early era where Peter Green is playing blues music is singular. His guitar tone, his soul, his singing voice, and the feeling he brings to blues was unique. He was one of the only white blues musicians that B.B. King actually rated. He said, like, that guitar, his guitar playing makes me sweat. And there's a certain emotional darkness and an agony. When you play the blues, you can play it artificially or you can play it with feeling. The early Fleetwood Mac, people don't really recognize them enough for this. Boy, they play blues with a feeling. Charlie, what have you been up to? Well, I told you last time about the roller coaster of emotions that my five-year-old sent me on when I got him an Aaron Judge t-shirt. But I'm just pleased to report that the Gators t-shirt that I got came two days later. And that was an absolute hit right off the bat. The moment that it came out of the packet and I showed him the orange and the blue and the Gators logo. In fact, he's, he's wearing it now. He's refusing to take it off. So anyone who felt for me in the last episode of the editors should know I'm now returned to Zen. So I had breakfast the other day with George Will, and I'm happy to report that he fully endorses every major league rules change, including, quite correctly and wisely, the ghost runner and extra innings. My theory is that there is massive false consciousness out there among baseball fans who all say, oh, I hate it. I can't stand it. And then happily watch these extra inning games where where, uh, the extra innings where lots of interesting things happen. And in a couple years, the ice will break and people say, oh, you know, this ghost runner is okay. And then everyone will actually finally admit it's been good for the game. Don't contradict me, Jeff. I was about to say, you're, you are, you are no contradiction allowed. Conservative in all things except baseball rules change. Yeah, so this is how we got Trump rich. <laughs> By the way, the the pitch clock. I complete the pitch clock is so long overdue, and what a magnificent addition to the game this year it's been. Absolutely, well, the, the pitch clock is a great example of conservative reform because you needed a, a change that felt kind of radical to get the game back to uh, the way it used to be. It was also constitutionalist though, Rich, because it's still there in the text. It's in the rule book, see? It's within the the four corners. Yep, it's an originalist project. I'm I'm totally uh, with you, which occasionally involves overturning bad precedent. The ghost runner? I mean, come on, George Will. I know, I don't know. This man was in Ken Burns' baseball. Man, what is he doing? He, He... he just like uh, as he points out correctly, baseball just has less rallies. You know, we we tend to watch baseball for the rally, rallies. There's something to be said for you know a tightly pitched game. But he pointed out to me something I didn't know that the, the infamous I would say not famous because I'm a Yankee fan, but the the Pirates uh, Yankees 
World Series where Mazeroski wins it with a walk-off. Do you know how many strikeouts there were in that game? It was like 10 to 8 game. Um, but that was a, that. My dad still considers that one of the darkest days of his life. There was like the Cuban. It was horrible. He, he, he said that was that's actually the, on an equal level as the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> a year there were zero strikeouts. <laughs> zero. There, there, zero strikeouts in that game. Wow. wow. Which I mean, the, the 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 Yankees strike out just routinely twelve times a game now. But anyway, with that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD. What's your pick? My pick is piece on the site right now by Wilfred Riley. Let's not commit national suicide. Which is, uh, need to hear both sides. What? <laughs> let's hear both sides. You know, let's have some debate. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Wilfred is addressing the uh, you know the low fertility ghost that haunts me and a lot of other conservative thinkers, beginning with that awful list of East Asian countries whose whose fertility rates are below 1.3 and you know that stagnation is coming for us if we don't begin turning things around yes i'm really glad i've learned to play this game where i realize that the obvious pick will be chosen by someone else so i had that wilford piece and then i thought no i'm gonna go instead with jim garrity jim garrity wrote a great piece the other day called kamala harris's high presidential odds folks we cannot realistically talk about how Joe Biden is a senile old man without contemplating the fact that the man, the person most likely to replace him could be, yeah, Veep, uh, Selena Meyer from Veep, uh, Kamala Harris. It's a great piece, and uh, people start really ought to getting ready for the possibility that she could be the Democrats' next leader. And uh, boy, that'll be hilarious. Charlie. Mine is a short piece by Joseph W. Sullivan called Bidenomics, a bust for the middle class. I found this attempt to make Bidenomics happen extremely irritating. But Joseph W. Sullivan points out that on its own rationale, it doesn't make any sense because the argument being advanced is that wages adjusted for inflation soaring and yet compared to other presidents, that's not true. So my pick is Armin White, who had two great Armin White reviews of the big movies that have yeah. come out, Oppenheimer, which we discussed, and Barbie. I was listening to, uh, I love Aaron McLean's podcast, School of War, and he had a guy on uh, talking the, the other day about John Quincy Adams and, and his uh, uh, career and geopolitical views and, and said, you know, Quincy Adams didn't really come into his own until he was in opposition and on the attack. That's where he, he was just best and, and most natural and true to himself. And it's certainly true of Armand White yep. <laughs> as well. And just to give you a flavor, the, the subhead of the Oppenheimer Review is Christopher Nolan remakes Dr. Strangelove for today's moral idiots. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Jeff. Thanks to MBD. Thanks to Made In and the Free the Economy podcast. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We are the editors. We'll see you next time.